0: Well, I just feel like every time you read Luke 19, 1 to 10, you can't help but have that song if you know it. It's just like it's in your head. And I don't know how many of the Sunday school songs I sang um, stuck around like that, but Zacchaeus certainly uh, did. And according to the Bible, Zacchaeus was indeed a wee little man. Uh, but that wasn't the, uh, the core thing about him. He was also a tax collector and despised because he was. He was a betrayer of Israel And he was an outcast, as a result, uh, an outcast among his own people. He was wealthy, and yet his wealth didn't bring him any satisfaction. And he was searching for something more, something different in life, like so many of us have or are already doing. And the the thing is, he found it. That's the great thing about this very short little account in the New Testament is he found what he was looking for, or maybe I could say it better, what he was looking for found him. And his life in that moment, in this short narrative, was radically transformed. And that of his whole family, his household, the transformation was so wholesale, so immediate that it actually presses you and me to ask a question. Has salvation in Jesus Christ affected us similarly? Have our homes been radically transformed by Christ? Has salvation made any significant difference in my life and in the life of my family? If someone went to your home and observed your home, would they say, salvation has come to this house? Which is exactly what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. Are people seeing the evidence of Christ in your home? Let's, uh, let's read the passage and we'll uh, start working uh, through it right away. Uh, speaking of Jesus, Luke records here, Luke 19:1 to 10 he entered Jericho and was passing through. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, speaking of the crowd, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Has salvation come to my house? That's the question each of us in this room needs to ask. And we're going to answer that question in effect by asking three more very specific questions that emerge out of our text today. Uh, So let's start with Q1. Uh, Q1, do I have a whatever it takes attitude about getting it? And by it, I mean salvation. Do you have a whatever it takes Whatever it takes, I want the salvation that Jesus Christ is offering here. Now remember, if you've been tracking with us in this series, back in chapter 18, just the chapter before this, we saw all these different encounters and it's all playing together in order here. And each of the stories has an an impact on the other. And you remember back in, in chapter 18, we met another man who was rich. He was called the rich ruler and he came to Jesus with his question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, and he was not willing to do whatever it took to get that salvation. And in fact, it says he walked away sad. Because he didn't want to do what Jesus had laid out for him to do. Now, Zacchaeus stands in contrast to This is a different rich man, and, and he's going to respond to Jesus in a completely different way. Jesus enters Jericho. This is his town. He was passing through it on the way to Jerusalem. Zacchaeus is there. He's the chief tax collector. He's rich, and he's not going to let anything stand in the way of him seeing Jesus and figuring out who this guy is. And if he has something to say to him about how he could be saved, And so he did what a Jewish man, what a wealthy man, what an influential man would never do. Again, he's going to do whatever it takes. And what did he do? Verse four, he ran. He ran. I don't believe any human being should ever run anywhere for any reason at all. (laughs) But in that culture, you already knew that about me, but in that culture, it was actually a social protocol that a man, that a wealthy man, that an influential man, that a Jewish man would simply just never run anywhere. But he wasn't going to let anything get in the way of him seeing Jesus. So he runs ahead of the crowd because the crowd was keeping him, this short man, from seeing Jesus. So he gets on ahead of the crowd and he climbs up into a tree. Seriously, who climbs trees? Who climbs trees? Kids climb trees. Kids and Blair climb trees. (laughs) Now remember back to chapter 18 again. Remember? Remember what Jesus said? You you can't get to the kingdom of heaven unless you come like a like a child. You got to lose all the pride, you got to lose all the inhibitions, you got to get everything out of the way. He climbs a tree. He wanted the kingdom of God. Why is he willing to do all these quote unquote shameful things? Well, it's obvious from the text that Zacchaeus was what we might call a spiritual seeker. Verse 3 actually tells us that that he was seeking after an understanding of who Jesus was. Perhaps it was because his wealth had not brought him any joy or satisfaction in life. For whatever reason, he was seeking after something else. Maybe it was because people didn't like him. Because he was a tax collector because he was cheating his own people, because he was collaborating with the Romans. Maybe he was starved for personal relationships and wanted to feel love and belonging, and he didn't have it. So he goes looking for Jesus. Why Jesus? Why did this crowd and this rabbi catch his attention? Well, again, back to chapter 18, I I wonder... Had he heard Jesus tell the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple? Remember the story, the Pharisee, who's a religious person, comes to pray, but he's all puffed up and only thinking about himself and comparing himself to the sinner and so glad I'm not like this guy. This tax collector comes, he's just broken before the Lord and I'm a sinner and God, please be merciful to me. And Jesus said, the tax collector of the two, the tax collector is the one who walks away justified, saved. Now listen, if you're a tax collector and a chief tax collector, and Jesus has just been teaching that a tax collector could go to the temple, pray, and walk away saved, listen, don't you think that gets your attention? Don't you think you want to hear more from that guy as you're seeking out your own way to feel fulfillment in life? I mean, that caught his attention. Jesus was giving hope to all the hated and all the hurting and all the outcasts in that society. That was a message that was going to spread fast even without Twitter and Facebook. Everybody was going to hear that. Every tax collector was going to hear it. So Zacchaeus wasn't going to let anything hinder him not the least of which was his own pride. So he was willing to run, and he was willing to climb a tree to see who this guy was. And I wonder if you've thought about what might be keeping you, if you would describe yourself as a spiritual seeker, and and I'm not quite there yet, but I'd like to know more about Jesus. What might be keeping you from him? Or if you are a follower of Christ and you've made a commitment, what's actually keeping you from making a deeper commitment and, and allowing the, the full weight of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life happening and so that your household really does reflect the fact that salvation has come to it? Well, at the end of the day, it's always pride. It's always pride. Number one on the list of the things that's going to keep us that we're, we're not willing to surrender What crowd do you have to overcome? What tree do you have to to climb? What prideful thing needs to get out of the way? I jotted down a few here, how pride manifests itself in our lives, things that keep us from Jesus. Number one, if you're writing these down, I care too much about what others think of me. I care too much about what others think of me. They might think I'm crazy if I believe in God, if I give my life to Jesus, if I spend more time at the church, if I read my Bible, if I sing those songs. I don't want to be considered a religious nut or fanatic. You care too much about what people think of you. You need to think more about what God thinks of you. Secondly, I put down, I believe I can do this by myself. I don't need God. I believe I can do this by myself. This is the whole nonsense of, oh, just believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself. You don't need to believe in yourself. Trust me, you're here. I can see you. You exist. There is no need to believe in yourself. There is, though, an absolute need to believe in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? That, that's, that's just pride. Uh, thirdly, I refuse to admit that my way isn't working. I refuse to admit that my way isn't working. If you look up on the internet a definition of stupidity, what you come up with is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Have you ever seen that before? And yet so many people live their life exactly like this. I'm 20 years old, I'm 30 years old, I'm 40 years old, I'm 50 years old. I'm still doing the exact same thing. I'm not satisfied. I don't know who I am. I haven't figured things out. I'm still going after destructive things in my life. But I'm still doing it exactly the same way. Now, far be it from me to call anyone stupid here this morning. I would never do that. <laughs> Is that you, Brad Ellis? Oh, my God. You do your own self-evaluation. Let's just say that. And then I wrote this fourth one down. Um it's really just pride that gets us to the place where we believe that the demands of following Jesus are too high. Why would Jesus ask me to pay that price? The demands of following Jesus are high, by the way. You have to take up your cross and follow him. You have to be crucified, okay? I'm crucified to self. I'm alive to Christ. But to, but to add it all up and just go, Jesus, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't add up, is just flat out bad math. So Zacchaeus, for his part, he he cut through all of this. He managed to set aside his pride entirely. And Jesus, the the cool thing is, as he's seeking, Jesus is already there waiting for him. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place. Now, Zacchaeus has run ahead of the crowd. They've never met before. Remember, Zacchaeus is trying to figure out who this Jesus is. Zacchaeus climbs the tree. The crowd starts coming close. And when Jesus came to the place, verse 5, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, they hadn't met before, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, I must stay at your place today. I mean, good Bible study, you're always asking questions, You're, you're reading the verse and you're just asking a lot of questions, that's good Bible study. The first question I have is, how did he know he was Zacchaeus? How did he know that's what his name was? Blair, come on up here for a second. You know, I have it in my mind, because I speculate, I ask questions, and I wonder, how did he know that his name was Zacchaeus? And, and I imagine that uh, this might have been true, that maybe Zacchaeus was just wearing a big hello, my name is sticker. <laughs> By the way, you are not a wee little man. <laughs> so, bad example, but thanks, Blair. Go ahead, man. <laughs> no, probably not probably not wearing a hello, my name is sticker, probably, definitely, as you read the text, you see that there's a divine plan being worked out here. And and you're getting a sense by the end of this passage that this isn't just about Zacchaeus getting saved, but this is about Jesus showing us how all of us get saved, that this is about Jesus' entire mission. God is setting the whole thing up. It's a divine plan. Zacchaeus was seeking, but so was God. Zacchaeus was doing everything he knew to do and not letting anything get in the way, and God met him right there. And that's that's my story. I thought I was looking for God. I was going to church. I was starting to read my Bible. I was listening to teaching. I was going to a youth event. And then I found out he was looking for me the whole time. And I know that's the story of many, many of you. David Garland said this, Zacchaeus was seeking to learn who Jesus is and discovers that Jesus already knows who he is. And if you're seeking for Jesus, I just need to tell you right now, he already knows who you are and he knows everything about you and he's seeking you. So you need to have a whatever it takes attitude about getting the salvation that he's offering. All right, that's that's Q1. Here's Q2. Do I have joy in hearing what Jesus says to me? Again, that that rich ruler back in chapter 18, he went away sad at what Jesus said. And lots and lots of people actually walk away sad. Lots of people will come here or come to churches like this one and like so much about it. And then when they start to hear the gospel, they start to hear what Jesus is saying, and they start to hear some of the implications of the gospel, they walk away sad. That's not what I was looking for. I'm not willing to pay that price. They don't have the joy at hearing what Jesus is saying. So Jesus here, he invites himself to Zacchaeus' house because there's some things he's going to say to him. Verse 6 Zacchaeus hurried. He came down from the tree and received Jesus. What does it say, verse 6? Received him joyfully joyfully i mean he's he's thrilled he's thrilled first of all that jesus took notice of him up in the tree he's 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 thrilled that jesus knew his name and he's especially thrilled that jesus invited himself to his house that you got to get that that last one is so significant because of how tax collectors were viewed in the culture Everyone hated them. And here's Jesus, a rabbi, agreeing to go into his home. And of course, that's why the crowd reacted as they did in verse 7. They, they grumbled. He's, he's gone in to be the guest of a sinner. Yes, that's the whole point. That's why he came, was to reach sinners. That's great news, by the way, for everyone in this room. Isn't it? I mean, no one here is surprised to know they're a sinner, right? Y'all knew that before? He came to see, we're going to find out in verse 10, he came to seek and save the sinners, the lost ones. Somehow the crowd is missing that. But here's Jesus, through his love and his compassion and his grace, he's going to reach Zacchaeus. He's going to draw Zacchaeus to himself, a sinner, into a relationship with him. See, whenever a sinner hears the gospel and gets it, I remember that day for myself, it's going to bring a joy that he or she has never experienced before. Sins forgiven, burdens fall off, guilt, fear, shame erased. In their place, what do you get? You get love. You know you're loved. You get identity. Hope. Peace, because now there's no longer anything between you and God, so you have this reconciled relationship with him. And joy. Joy floods over the whole thing because of everything else that he gives you. All because of Jesus, all because of what he did. I think of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and where Jesus, um, because of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. Because of the joy that was set before him, the same joy that's set before us. I mean, we're looking to be like Zacchaeus in this moment. You can't read this and go, I think I need to be like Zacchaeus. I need to seek like Zacchaeus. I need to hear the words that Zacchaeus hears. For sure, that's a lesson but but we we can't miss the lesson of the crowd who are grumbling against this very thing happening and we want to make sure that we're not the crowd we need to do what Jesus did we need to welcome the unlovely we need to welcome the hurting we need to welcome the outcast we need to help them get over their shock and surprise when they are welcomed And loved and brought in and cared for? And churches honestly haven't always been good at this, and Christians haven't always been good at this. How could it be possible that some, like Zacchaeus, would feel unwelcome in the very place that has been entrusted with the good news of Jesus Christ? Good news that's for sinners. There's a hard word for us here. And I remember one of the most influential books that I've ever read. I read it when it first came out Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And in chapter one, he tells a story. And I know I've told this story here before, but Yancey says this um, He invited a prostitute to church. And she responded Church? Church? Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. And there's a truth to that for many churches and many Christians. We can't be the crowd who, when they saw Jesus talking to, to, to Zacchaeus, grumbled. Grumbled. We can't be the ones pointing to a person and say, that person's a sinner. We shouldn't spend any time with them. It's so counter to the gospel. Instead, we need to create a welcoming community. It's on the wall. Love God, love people. We mean it. We're serious about it. Freely dispensing the grace of God so that people can experience the joy of Jesus Christ in their lives. We need to be like Jesus, inviting ourselves into the lives of sinners. That's Yancey's point in his book. But what he doesn't necessarily explore in the book is the second part of this, that there needs to come a point at which the truth is brought to bear in the person's life. The truth and grace always go hand in hand. It's not a balance of grace and truth. It's the fullness of both grace and truth all the time. The grace welcomes a person in. The truth is the thing that's going to set them free. Jesus Christ himself, John 1, says Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. He's full of both. We can't be all truth or we repel people. We can't be all grace or we bring them in and welcome them and excuse their lifestyle. And we don't give them any real hope at all. It, again, needs to be grace and truth. So there comes a point at which the truth reveals the sin and calls the sinner, to use the prostitute's words, feel bad. There is a point at which every person here who's a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a point at which you had to feel bad. About your sin and about the separation between you and God. And then you repent. So the prostitute in Yancey's story was to be loved and accepted and 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 then made to feel bad. Not at coming, not at being with God's people, but because of her choice. See, that would be her only hope of finding what Jesus Christ is offering. It would be her only hope of being freed from her destructive lifestyle. Her only hope of finding joy. Now, the thing that's interesting, back to the Zacchaeus story, is that we're not given the content of the conversation between Zacchaeus and Jesus. We see his response to it, but we don't know what the conversation actually was about. But Zacchaeus too, somewhere along the way, would have come to the realization that it was not okay to live his life the way he had been living it. Not okay. And his seeking of Jesus was actually an indicator that he already knew that. My thing's not working. I wonder if Jesus can help me with that. You see, it's a good thing to make people feel uncomfortable about their sin, just as Jesus would have had to do with Zacchaeus, because that sin is the thing that's keeping us from God. There's joy in hearing what Jesus says to us, even the hard stuff, because it leads to life. There's no salvation without repentance. Q3, has salvation come to my house? Do I see big changes happening in my life? I mean, Zacchaeus gets saved, he exercises faith, he comes to Christ. However you want to say that, it happens, but we're not told precisely when it happens. But as I look at the text here, between verse 7, if you look at the text right now, between verse 7 and verse 8, a lot happens. In that little bit of white space between those two verses, there's a whole conversation. There's a whole thing that happens. Verse 5, Jesus comes to the place where Zacchaeus is. He invites himself to his house. Verse 6, Zacchaeus comes down and receives him joyfully. Verse 7, the people are grumbling about it. And then all of a sudden it says, and Zacchaeus stood. What did he stand from? He'd just come down from the tree according to the text. But in fact, what had happened is they had gone to his house. They had prepared a meal. They had had a conversation. He's down at the table as Jesus is telling him everything. And now from the table, he stands and responds to everything Jesus had said to him. So, I'm just saying, there's a lot that happened between verses 7 and 8. And him expressing his faith, his trust in Christ, was evidenced by what he does in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. I mean, he just did a quick calculation, got out the... The, the, the bank accounts looked at his investments, looked at his worldly wealth, and he, uh, and he figured out what his net worth was, and he cut that in half and said, I'm giving half of that, half of my worth, I'm going to give as a thank offering to God for the salvation that's just come to me. And, and then he, he goes on to say, that seems like a pretty awesome thing, just all on its own. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything... Oh, he's a tax collector. No, no, no. He's a chief tax collector. So the tax collectors would sit at the tax booth. They would have a contract with the Romans. And they had to submit a certain amount to the Romans for for the tolls and the taxes on the people. But then they would charge whatever surcharge. They weren't getting through the toll without paying it. Whatever surcharge they wanted to add on to that, they would just keep for themselves. Well, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means he has a downline, which means there's a bunch of people working for him, and he's taking a cut of all of it. You get it? How many people do you think he's defrauded? The road from Jericho to Jerusalem's well-traveled. It's, a, it's like the 401. Okay? Whoever I've defrauded, I'm going to pay it back four times. I mean, salvation came to his house. Wouldn't we agree? I mean, he's radically transformed here. And so we hear Jesus' declaration over it. This is Zacchaeus' response. And then Jesus says, verse 9 Today salvation has come to this house. It's super obvious that Zacchaeus is saved. And Jesus goes on to say, Since he is also a son of Abraham. Now, ethnically, he was. By birth, he was a son of Abraham. He's a Jewish man. But now, what Jesus is saying is, He's spiritually reborn. He's now a spiritual son of Abraham, a true believer, roughly equivalent, okay, to many, many Canadians who would call the vast majority of Canadians would call themselves Christians, but not spiritually so, not in reality. So that's what we're talking about here. Jesus is pronouncing over and saying, This guy's truly saved. I mean, he's a real son of Abraham. And then he, then he states in verse 10, this is, this is the, the overall mission. This is where you see there's both like a, a micro thing going on with the saving of Zacchaeus, and then there's a macro thing going on where Jesus says, this is the model by which everyone's going to get saved. This is my whole mission. For the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. So you got, you got in the early part of the story, you got Zac- Zacchaeus is seeking to know who Jesus is, and then you find out in verse 10, it's actually Jesus who's doing the seeking. He's seeking the lost. He's seeking Zacchaeus. And so, if this hasn't been clear enough yet, we need to see Jesus does not welcome the sinner into his kingdom without the sinner repenting. There's going to be change. The evidence of God's forgiveness is a changed life. Jesus meets us where we are. You've heard that before. Jesus meets us where we are, but we can't stay there. Salvation compels us to move to a new place, And earlier in in the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist preached this, Luke 3, 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, there's going to be something produced in your life that's going to look different because now you're actually saved. And if you're wanting to get right with God, you're going to agree with Him. You're going to make a turn. You're going to make changes that are going to be evident to everyone. Everyone. That's repentance. So what kind of changes are we talking about? If we're talking about, has salvation come to my house? What are we actually talking about? Let's get super practical. And in an effort to be super practical, I surveyed a bunch of people in our Harvest family this week and had them give their responses to what does a house look like when salvation has truly come to it, and I'm gonna give you something super practical here, evidence that salvation has come to your house. I don't, you don't need to keep this list. I don't think we even gave you enough room in the notes for this, but um, we're gonna put all this on social media this week so you can just listen and kind of take this in and not feel like you have to jot it all down. Um, and by the way, what this isn't, just so we're clear, um, you're not gonna hear things like, oh, Life 100.3 is always playing on the radio. We have affixed a cross in our foyer, so that everybody that comes in sees the cross. We have uh, we have scripture artwork in our house. We have scriptures on the walls. We have a very large King James Version Bible on a coffee table in our living room. We have Christianly stuff all over our refrigerator, and a fish on our car. <laughs> Not on the list though you may have those things and probably do. Five categories and several examples of each. First one, a change in attitude. A change in attitude in your home. Salvation has come to your home, there's going to be a change in, here's some examples. There's going to be gratitude in your home, saying thank you to one another. I was just talking to Cheryl this week. We were talking with each other. We still say thank you to each other for very routine, mundane things. We expect nothing of each other. I make her coffee, she says, thank you. She does the laundry, I say, thank you. Those are roughly equivalent to. In my mind. Kids, it's okay to say thank you to your parents. Honestly. Parents, it's okay to give your kid a chore and then actually say thank you for them doing it as if that would ever happen. Generosity, joy even in difficulty. There's just something about a home that has salvation and it has peace, like you can walk into a home where Jesus is there and you just feel it. Laughter. If you have Jesus, your home should not be a legalistic, ritualistic, joy-killing environment. There should be laughter. We've always had a rule in our house, And this has been so helpful for diffusing many situations. If it's funny later, it's funny now. (laughs) Okay, just write that down, and you're going to see how often that applies. And you're going to say, sometimes that does not apply. Just wait, just wait. Later it will be funny. And so laugh about it now. There's so many things we get anxious about that we just don't need to be anxious about. Honesty, just being honest with one another. Parents with kids, kids with parents. Don't hide everything from your kids. They can handle more than you think. Loving, serving, putting others before yourself. That's a great one for brothers and sisters. Change of attitude. Change of communication. Too much anger, unkindness, and harshness in homes. You know, the the old rule that the people who are closest to you, it's just easier to treat them with contempt. You know, things you would never say at work, you come home and you vent it all on your family. and, And how is that in any way appropriate? Speak lovingly, speak graciously, encourage one another. Why would we think that people in our home would not need our encouragement? I'm not gonna get it anywhere else. Friendships, care, oh, sorry, um, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in a loving way, speaking the truth because I love you. Quick confession and repentance. Kids to parents, siblings with each other, and listen, parents to kids, when you blow it, never, never, never a sign of weakness when a parent apologizes to a kid. And parents do make mistakes, right? Kids, this is a great opportunity for you. I'll blow your parent right now, okay? <laughs> parents make mistakes. Did you hear the pastor said so? You have to apologize to me, right? But that should be true in a Christian home. A change in relationships. Category three, marriage is restored and thriving. Marriage, a very picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Parenting practices altered. We're not going to follow the ways of this world. We're going to train our children in the way they should go, according to the word of God. Friendships carefully chosen and invested in. Cheryl and I, listen, categorically, Cheryl and I picked our kids' friends. We did. We, we, we made it very easy for our kids to hang out with certain kids and very hard for them to hang out with other kids. I mean, they're in their 20s now. The secret is out. We didn't tell them at the time we were picking their kids. And if you're one of our kids' friends, just know you were chosen. <laughs> neighbors, several respondents said this, neighbors loved What do your neighbors see in you? Do they see something different? Or are you just like every other neighbor? Selfish, caring only about your own property, keeping to yourself, hold up in your home. I'm not saying that every neighbor is going to love the fact that you're a Christian. In fact, in my neighborhood, when they, I I hear real estate agents tell people who move onto our street that a pastor lives at 29. Okay, That puts me at a definite disadvantage. And I have neighbors who will just flat out ignore us. But we still have the opportunity to minister to them, to speak kindly to them, to offer prayers for them, to check in on them when something happens, okay? What do your neighbors see in you? Change in relationships. Fourth, a change in spiritual disciplines. The word is read and talked about in your home. And I'm not talking about, oh, you have to read a chapter of scripture every single night. I know plenty of families who had the drill down perfectly, but whose kids walked away from Jesus because it never meant anything and it was never lived out. The, the drill, the discipline is a zero apart from living it out. What's more important to me is Deuteronomy 6 where it talks about, okay, we're hearing the word of God, we are reading it, but we're living it out and we're talking about it and it, it has implications in our lives and we're using it to help us make decisions. The word of God is living and active. It's, it's not just a sterile after supper, read a chapter philosophy of life serve together. The priority of regular worship. The biblical handling of money. Maybe you've never even thought about that being a spiritual discipline, but it is. Jesus has a lot to say about how we handle money. The boldness to share the message of Christ. Is there an eagerness in your home to let other people know about Him? And then five, this is where I'll offend most people. Other practical changes. No unfiltered, unmonitored internet access for anyone on any device. Was that clear or did not need to read it a second time? Did you get it the first time? None, for no one. I mean, at, at best, at best, if you have unmonitored, unfiltered internet coming into your home, at best you are naive and at worst you are foolish. It's a cesspool. Discernment in TVs, movies, and video games. We had a rule when our kids were growing up, no killing games. It's an affront to God. No killing games. Well, then we relented and we said they could kill orcs and goblins, okay? <laughs> but killing human beings? Image of God? God? Sports and activities bend to church, not the other way around. A new and better perspective on alcohol. The Bible does not preach prohibition. Uh, This church does not preach prohibition or abstinence for everyone from alcohol, but uh, one respondent said this, um, and I thought it was uh, clever, of fewer wine bottles in the blue box. Fewer. In other words, we're, we're going to think about this. We're going to use discernment. We're, we can drink, but in moderation. No one drinking to excess, to drunkenness. And you know, in our home, and the way this played out, my mom and dad are right down here, but many decades ago when we were first seeking out the gospel ourselves and God was seeking us, and we got into a tough spot as a family. And my dad, he started drinking very, very heavily while I was in my teenage, my, my mid-teen years. And my mom, she was like, she went to him and she was a brand new believer. And she went to him and she laid it down. And she said, I will not live with an alcoholic. You have a choice, your family or the bottle, but it's not both. And my dad, to his credit, because that was resolved, don't you think? My dad, to his credit, before he even accepted Christ, put the bottle away. He's 81 years old now, and listen, he put the bottle away. He's never had a, a drop of alcohol since. My, my dad... Man. My dad chose his wife. He chose his sons. He chose his uh, daughters-in-law. He chose his grandchildren. He chose the people his grandchildren have now married. Salvation came to our house. And the change was obvious. Now I want to cap that off. That was a lot right there. And there's no doubt that all of that could be a whole separate series on the family. But let me cap this off as I read one response that I got that was more of a testimony. Listen to this. When we were saved by Christ, the evidence in our house was immediate. We averted separation, a likely divorce, and our marriage was restored. We learned how to love each other like Jesus Our family focus changed dramatically and so did our lifestyle. The words we spoke to each other, the music we listened to, the books we read, and the shows we watched. We served in the church as much as possible and still still do. And even though we didn't abandon our non-believing friends, we started hanging out with other Christians more than anyone else. There was a big change in how we handled our finances. Buying a smaller home to free up money for giving... And to allow me to work part-time in order to raise our children. Our parenting style changed. I mean, meeting Jesus was a 180-degree turn for us. And we're so very grateful. Salvation came to that house. Has salvation come to your house? Here's how I uh, think we should respond to this message. I am certain, because as I prepared this message, I was coming up with things that I know need to be looked at in our home. And I'm certain that all of you could say there's something we need to look at in our home. So the worship team is gonna come right now and I want you to ask that question, what needs to change at home? What do we need to look at and pray about? The response to Jesus when we hear something like this is always, I repent. I agree with you, God. I agree with what I've heard. And I'm gonna make the turn. And change happens. So what do you need to repent of? And I thought we would go back to no other name, the last song that we sang. And I want you to think of it this way, and I want to show you some of the lyrics. And I want you to think about the phrase, in my house. And so the, the lyrics are, one name holds weight above them all. In my house. His fame outlasts the earth he forms. In my house. His praise resounds beyond the stars. In my house. And echoes in our hearts. In my house. The greatest one of all. In my house. There is no other name. In our house. So I'm going to invite you right now. Think about that salvation come to your house. And how could it? What needs to happen? Bow your heads right now and close your eyes. You can set aside your Bibles and your notes and your pens. and Just spend this time in prayer. Team's going to play for a little bit here while you pray and respond to the Lord and wrestle with him over some of these things. And then they're going to start singing this song. And when you're ready, you can just stand and join with them as they lead.